0: We're not ashamed to admit that when we booked Debbie Billman for our show, we were a little bit intimidated, not by Debbie herself. She always comes across as kind, smart, and thoughtful
1: in the interviews that she does for her own show, Design Matters. But Just knowing that we were interviewing a pioneer in the podcasting space, someone who's been interviewing designers and creatives for over 15 years and who spends a huge amount of time and effort researching each of her guests. Well, that had us just a little bit nervous. But that turned out to be
0: completely unwarranted, because Debbie is as gracious and entertaining a guest as she is an interviewer. In addition to her long-running podcast, Debbie's the President Emeritus of AIGA. She's also the Chair and Co-Founder of the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts
1: in New York City. We spoke with Debbie about the role that teaching plays in her learning process, we covered a range of topics, from ethics in design to the difference between being a designer and being an artist. We hope you enjoyed the interview as much as
0: we enjoyed chatting with Debbie. Thanks so much for listening.
1: As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics like the new AI economy, and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Debbie Millman, welcome to the Design Better podcast.
2: Thank you. It's really wonderful to be here, Eli and Aaron. It's just an honor.
1: Well, the honor is all ours. The fact that you've been podcasting for now 15 years, almost 16 years, and I don't know how many episodes you've recorded, but it's a lot. And you've amassed a wealth of knowledge over those 15 years, speaking to lots of really interesting folks. One thing that's fascinating to us is that you seem to have built A machine. I call it the magic triangle. I visited you many moons ago at SVA and was on your show very briefly, but it impressed me that you had your studio next to your classrooms where you were teaching, next to your office slash kind of design making space. And that that was a triangle of three different activities of learning and of sharing and of making. Was that intentional or is that just serendipity?
2: Wow, what a wonderful question and what a really touching observation. Well, I do like a lot of blur in my life in terms of what I do and how I do it and when I do it. And I got really lucky when I started working at the School of Visual Arts because my program was something that I created and worked with David Rhodes, the president at SVA to create the space that the program was going to be living in. And I knew from another program, what was then the Design Crit program that Alice Twemlow first founded, that she had built a podcast studio in her space. And so I asked if I could do that too. And David said, yes. And so it allowed me to then use the studio in front of my students so that they could participate and watch. And that up until very recently was a really big part of my program where my students would be able to witness live the podcast sessions. And then what wasn't shown or recorded by the podcast was that my guests would then come out and do a QA with my students. That's all changed now because we're doing online learning and I haven't asked my guests to do online podcasting with 27 students. (laughs) So so did I do it intentionally? Not really, but I think subconsciously I did because I really do like all of the areas of my life to overlap. I, for a long time, felt like I couldn't even say legitimately that I had any work-life balance because I felt like my work was very much of my life it didn't feel like laborious it didn't feel like something i wasn't looking forward to it was all things that i felt so lucky to be a part of that i just wanted to do it as much as i could and integrate every area of my life into that now since i've recently gotten married that's changed a little bit <laughs> so it's all also brand new now because i also got married during a global pandemic and you know we don't see anybody else but each other except when it's online so everything's been a bit changed now.
0: Congrats on your marriage. Thank, uh, Ro- thank you. and Gay, the writer, right?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Oh, fantastic. Um, Debbie, a while back, you were on the Tribe of Mentors podcast for, for Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm.
2: Tim is my brother. Brother <laughs> from another mother.
0: <laughs> One thing that you mentioned there, you tell your students to stay in career shape or get in career shape before they get out into the world. And I teach undergrads as well. And I think it's really powerful advice. I wonder how you think about that, not only from the perspective of, of a, a student entering the workforce, but maybe at, at a career transition or mid-career. How do you think about staying in career shape?
2: Well, I think it's about keeping your muscles active. One of the things that I learned when I was working on my first book of visual essays, Look Both Ways, was that by the time I was finished with the book, I was much better at making the book than when I started because I'd been using those muscles and they got stronger. And as I was drawing and making the essays, the visual part, I found that my skills got much stronger. And as I finished each essay, I wanted to go back to the beginning and redo those because the year that it took me to do that, I felt like my skills improved quite considerably. And so I think it's important to keep doing the things that you love to do in an effort to get better at them. I don't know that you necessarily need to be conscious of how much better you're getting. I think that makes a little bit performative. But if you're engaged in something and you're constantly working at it, I think it's just inevitable that you will become stronger at doing it. And that's what I meant.
1: How does teaching play into that creative process? Do you think of it as a totally separate practice that you develop, or does it somehow inform the work that you're doing?
2: I think in order to be a really good teacher, you have to recognize that you have to know what you're teaching. You have to know what you're talking about. And teaching really forces you to become much smarter. (laughs) Because you can't teach something that you don't fully understand, understand what the strengths of it are, the weaknesses, where you can become better, what blind spots you might have. So I do think it's critically important to constantly be learning as you're teaching. And the students also force you to become a better teacher with their questions and their engagement and their participation. All of that is critical to really becoming a strong and credible leader.
0: One thing that my students are really increasingly interested in, and I'm guessing yours probably follow this as well, is, is the idea of ethics and design. And you had a great interview, one of your very earliest interviews was with Milton Glaser, and you talked about this extensively in the podcast. And at the time, he was illustrating, or he had prior illustrated Dante's Purgatory, and so this got him thinking about ethics, and he wrote this thing about ethics and the road to hell, and we'll link out to that. But the idea there, I think, is really interesting about kind of looking at these sort of gradations of ethics and having conversations, because to some degree, there's things that are Some things that are up to individual choice, and some things that are more up to maybe societal choice. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you think about ethics and design, and how do you talk about it with your students?
2: I've become increasingly more political as I've gotten older, and much more of an activist as part of who I am. In witnessing a lot of the injustice that I see around us, I wasn't as interested or or concerned about that when I was younger. I'm ashamed to say. The only pushback that I would have to Milton's 12 Steps on the Road to Hell is the notion that not all of us are as talented as Milton. And so I think it's, it's a little bit easier to have a very strong line, a very strong boundary in what you will and won't do if you have the opportunity to do pretty much whatever you want there are people that are still learning and struggling that might not have as many choices and therefore might not be able to say no to as many things or have a a strong staunch line about what isn't possible for them. So while Milton might not have worked on an alcoholic beverage at some point in his career, for those that were Struggling to pay their bills if they felt that this was something that they could do credibly, I would have a hard time judging that. The areas for me that are staunch are firearms, pro-life, and any message that is perpetuating a violent or inequitable world. But I'm also, you know, nearly 60 and sold a company and have been working for 35 years. It's a lot easier for me to say I am or I'm not going to do something because I have the means to survive without doing anything at this point. I can't judge people that have to do certain things to survive and have a tremendous amount of empathy because I grew up in a situation where everything that I was doing in my 20s was about survival everything that I was doing at that point in my life was can I pay my rent and my student loan and eat this month? And there were times where I'd have to choose. So I am not ever going to judge somebody that has to do something to be able to survive safely.
1: It is an extraordinary time. its I mean, it's a very complicated year, 2020.
2: Yeah, There
1: are so many heavy emotions that people are dealing with right now. And certainly the global political climate is living up to the challenges of 2020 as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, if I can also say something else about Milton, Milton changed my life. Milton was one of my mentors and one of the people that gave me so much. He was my teacher, my mentor, my friend. And he influenced me. He and Steve Heller are two of the most important influences in my life. I see Milton's practice as hashtag goals, you know, without being sort of stupid about it, because I do want to get to a place where, and I and I would think that everybody would like to get to a place where they could always be making the right decisions, not only for themselves, but also for their place in the world. And, you know, Milton, I miss Milton so much. I'm so sad that he passed. I think he he had definitely another bunch of good years that he could have been making work. He made work until the very end. But I also think that Milton was so much more talented than so many of us. Not that I want to say that it was easier for him because of that talent, but I think that that talent enabled him to make harder decisions, maybe a tiny bit easier than those of us that aren't as talented.
1: My observation about his work is that he's both was a man of the moment and a man above the moment in many ways in his work. And I wonder if thinking about what you learned from Milton Glaser over the years, how that informs the way that you think about the moment that we're in today and and what design can do to be a support in this moment.
2: One of the things I learned from Milton, and I say this about branding also, the condition of design and branding reflects the condition of our culture. And... One of the things that I have spent the last 15 years since I was in Milton's class trying to do was to be a better citizen in addition to being a better practitioner and to try to figure out ways to help my students become better citizens as well so that they could make decisions that they're proud of. You know, I made a lot of decisions in my 20s that I'm not proud of now, but again, I did them because I had to survive. I am trying to provide ways for my students to understand their abilities and their talents and their voice to be able to do that with a little bit more ease than I did. And I learned that from Milton for sure. The biggest thing that Milton gave his students, I think, was the idea that they could create a life that mattered if they wanted to. And he shared tools to help make that possible. And the thing that probably changed my life more than any was doing the five-year plan in his summer intensive that I took, which I've now taken on and evolved into a 10-year plan because the class that he taught was for mid-level designers and the classes that I teach tend to be for entry-level designers. And so I want to give them a bit more runway (laughs) than five years. Also, the five-year plan that I undertook 15 years ago took me about 13 years to fulfill. (laughs) So I want to give people the opportunity to have as much time as they possibly can without putting undue pressure to achieve in a shorter amount
0: of time. I noticed in doing my research, and I didn't do a Debbie Millman-level of research, I'll preface it by saying that, but I, I noticed that your families from Russia and are, are Jewish, and this is the same as on my mom's side, from Russia and Poland, and immigrated, and they lived in New York, primarily in Brooklyn, and I wasn't able to find anything about your grandparents. And in my case, my grandmother was an artist. She was a painter, and she attended the Art Students League in New York. I'm curious if your grandparents had any influence on your creativity or your
2: career. It's so interesting, Eli, that you ask because I've been obsessed in the last month or so, or re-obsessed because I was at one point. Now I am again with my ancestry, and so I'm working on my my family tree. And on my dad's side, I've gotten all the way back to the 1700s. Isn't that amazing? The 1700s. I haven't been able to get as far back on my mother's side because, sadly, nobody in my family remembers my great grandmother's maiden name. My great-grandfather died when he was 21, so there's very little information about him. She lived quite a long time, but nobody remembers her maiden name, so it's been hard for me to go further back on that side. But my grandfather on my father's side was an upholsterer, and his wife, my grandmother, was a homemaker. On my mother's side, my grandmother was also a homemaker, but her mother, the one who's Maiden name we can't find uh, was a shopkeeper because her husband died so early, she had to take care of the family. And so she ran a grocery store, which makes a lot of sense given my background in branding. And my grandfather was a pharmacist, as was my father. My maternal grandfather was a pharmacist, and my dad was a pharmacist. So there's a lot of that embedded in me as well. Probably one of the biggest influences. On my sense of self was my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who was very active in my early childhood and really gave me a strong sense of being loved. And I think that's where my communicative talent comes from, because when you have that kind of early childhood experience, one of my first words was "mima," and that was for grandma. That was my connection to her. It was that strong that I think really did help me develop that early ability to communicate. But as far back as my paternal side goes, I have family from Russia, from Poland. And so I do have relatives that died in the Holocaust. My father's side of the family were all very, very Orthodox Jews. My dad broke away from that. So I was only raised in a more conservative manner, but not in an Orthodox manner. And then on my mom's side, I can go only as far back as my great-grandparents, and they're from Romania.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit
0: crashplan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes, and they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan.
1: Support for design better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair, I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T. Desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. It's such a fascinating thing to search your family history and in learning more about the people who came before, you learn more about who you are today. Yes. And you've been asked, I think probably a number of times because you've talked to so many different people in creative fields, what's the red thread? What's the common thread through all of these folks And you said that everyone is searching, everyone's hoping. Yes. It's the human experience. Could you say more about that? And how does that apply to you? What are you searching for? And what are you hoping for today?
2: Oh, my goodness. It's a big question. I think that some of the common threads are a search for meaning. Almost everybody that I speak to on the podcast is looking for a better way to understand their purpose, what they're... Meaning is what they can contribute to the world. A sense of can they continue to keep doing it if they're doing it well? And that's something that I find to be true, really, no matter who I speak to and no matter how old they are. As for me, I'm really feeling the power of time right now. And I don't know if it's because of the pandemic, don't know if it's because. I will be 60 next year, but I said to Roxanne last night something that I've really been thinking about all week, which is when do I start doing the things that I've always wanted to do? And I've talked about, if not now, when before about other things that are more professionally oriented, but just in terms of the grand scheme of a life. Like, How much longer do I get to say, I want to learn how to play the piano before it's just something that is a pipe dream? Or is it a pipe dream? You know, I've been wanting to play the piano since I was a little girl. I never took lessons because that just wasn't the way my family worked. <laughs> I tried to teach myself. I tried to hire a friend of mine uh, of the same age who played the piano to teach me. I never had a piano. We never had money for a piano. So it wasn't like I could... Be able to foster practicing back when I was young during summer camp one year, you always could find me in the playhouse, tinkering away on the piano and taught myself how to play things like, you know, for Elise and do a deer and things like that. My brother just gave me a piano, an electric, little electric piano that he got for his kids who have abandoned their lessons. And that's in New York. I'm in LA right now. So Roxanne looked at me and said, well, you have this piano that your brother gave you, you know, now's the time. So when we get back to New York, I think I'm finally going to do that. But I think we, as a species, often put off a lot. And I talk about, you know, the notion of busy as a decision. And it's not necessarily because I've been too busy. It's just a matter of knowing how hard something's going to be and the very, very strong possibility that I am going to suck at it for a really long time before I could possibly even consider to be Reasonably terrible as opposed to outright sucking. And I think as we get older, we have a hard time engaging in things that we don't do well on a fairly regular basis. It's very, very difficult. Not only that, but it's also really hard to start to develop the new neural pathways that are required in order to learn a, basically a new language, which is what music and being able to read music is. So I've been grappling with that a lot. You know, Do I want to go to my deathbed and have X number of regrets? You know, What are they? What could they be? And I want to try to be able to feel like I lived my life ultimately without those. David Lee Roth, when I interviewed him, and I've talked about this ever since fairly regularly, talks about success and achievement when I asked him what it felt like. He's the lead singer of Van Halen in the 1980s to be you know, sort of the biggest, most popular rock band in the world. There was no one that didn't know who Van Halen was. And he was the lead singer. How did that feel? What did that feel like? To know that you were at that moment, like at the top, at the tippy top of your game. And he said that, you know, you have to be really careful when you get to the top of the mountain, because when you get there, when you get to the very, very top, the summit, it's always cold. You're often alone. And there's only one direction to go. And, you know, he talks about taking your time reaching that peak. And I don't feel like I've reached my peak, but I also kind of hope that I don't reach it till the day before I die, because I don't want to feel like I'm not still growing and moving and making things.
0: In your interview with Stefan Sagmeister, kind of tied to what you're talking about now, you discussed happiness a lot and you had a great story in the beginning about an Israeli mover who had come to help you. It actually reminded me of the scene. I don't know if you watched the show Bored to Death, but there was a scene with Israeli movers in that show, which was very humorous, but it a lot more serious. I wonder, you know, that, that interview was, I think, back in 2005. How is your thinking about kind of happiness and leading a happy life or a meaningful life? How has that evolved over time? And, you know, now that you're thinking about these long-term goals that you've had, how does that play into that?
2: Well, I learn a lot from Seth Godin. I don't know if everybody listening subscribes to his newsletter. He has a daily newsletter, seven days a week. And it's remarkable. And it's sometimes just a few sentences, sometimes a few paragraphs, very, very rarely more than that. Super profound. And he sent out a newsletter, I would say about a year and a half ago, writing about happiness. And that's really impacted my sense of what happiness is. And he talks about the difference between pleasure and happiness. And pleasure is something that you always seem to want more of. You, know, you have this thing that's pleasurable and you want more, you want more, you want more, you want more. But happiness is when you're content with what you have. And I really believe that to be true. Otherwise, you're just metabolizing whatever it is you're consuming. And want more, you know, in the same way we metabolize a meal. And then, you know, a few hours later, we want more. We metabolize sleep and then we get up and then, you know, whatever. And so that to me feels like the most accurate description of sort of the perfect state to be in, where you are just content with what you have. And that's something that I strive for and feel sometimes, not always.
1: pandemic has taken a lot from us globally, but one thing that it's given us all is a lot of attention and a lot of time. And that's caused a lot of people who once felt that sense of, you know, it's copacetic. I've got this job and I'm doing this thing every day and I'm getting a paycheck and taking care of my family, taking care of my bills. And now in the quiet reflection, they're realizing wait, what am I doing? What's this all about? Am I doing something that's meaningful? So a lot of creative people who are going back to the drawing board and thinking what's next for my career, for my pathway. And it's about work, but it's also about life. What advice do you give your students? And what advice have you gleaned from your own life experience in those moments of what's next?
2: I think a lot of people have been talking about productivity and time and productivity. And, you know, the one thing I do want to say is that a global pandemic is not the time to be worried about your productivity. You need to do what you need to do and being productive. If that is not something that you feel like doing, I think everybody should give themselves a pass on that. And I mean that very, very sincerely. In terms of my students, this was a crazy time. I mean, my graduate program at the School of Visual Arts is a very intense, high residency experience where people come from all over the world and are in classes five days a week, sometimes six days a week. And to go from a completely immersive five to six day a week experience in person every day to being online in a matter of three days was one of the most challenging things I've ever been through. And based on how our pre-podcast session went with headphones and technology, you can see that this is not something I do easily. As a matter of fact, Roxanne often says that I have a kryptonite relationship with technology. Last night, she was loving this new ocular device that she just got, wanted me desperately to be a part of it, took it off her head where it was working absolutely perfectly, put it on mine, didn't work. Like there's almost like a chemical reaction that happens. And so to have to master Zoom, Slack and Canvas in essentially, you know, 72 hours resulted in my almost having a nervous breakdown, like projectile tears into the computer. So I would say my first bit of advice is forgive yourself for your failings. (laughs) And then everybody has their own pace. And I spent a lot of time with my students one-on-one, a lot of time in classroom, just talking about how they were experiencing the world right now. And that was, I think, really important to establish a new foundation of trust and safety and care for everyone to be able to then start thinking about learning again. We just finished our program. We were technically supposed to be done mid-July and we had our thesis presentation yesterday, which was August 20th. So we just went a lot longer and spent a lot more time than we ordinarily would have been doing in an effort to really make it the best possible experience for the student body. They really were challenged in ways that I hope no student ever has to be challenged again.
0: Debbie, before we started the call, I was mentioning that I'm a big fan of your book, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. And there's an interview in there with Paul Sayre, and he said that design's supposed to be about something else, not about you. But I think the only way people to get people to care about it is if it's also about you at the same time. And there's interesting tension there. And how, do, how mm-hmm. do you think about that tension?
2: It is also very much about the practitioner. You know, it's hard to imagine Stefan Sackmeister doing work that isn't reflective of his own voice, that doesn't have a sense of it being something by Sagmeister. I think the same can be said for Milton Glaser. There's a certain sense of who they are, their view of the world that is embedded in the work. In terms of Paul, I think Paul is one of the best designers living today, and he is an artist as well as a designer. And I'm not saying because he makes fine art. I'm saying that he approaches graphic design as an art and he is a conceptual designer and therefore it's embedded with ideas and those ideas are very much from Paul Sayer's brain. And it's hard not to see that. It's hard not to feel that. Now, does that mean that every single person looking at Paul's work that isn't a designer is going to say, oh, that looks like a Paul Sayre to me. That looks like a really high concept piece of design. Not necessarily. But for those of us that are familiar in the same way that musicians might be aware of a studio musician that can do a certain riff, but you know, not everybody else that listens to Lady Gaga will know that. I think that it very much is reflective of Paul Sayre's voice, Paul Sayre's gestalt, you know, his sense of the world. And then other designers, not necessarily. I think that another amazing, brilliant, genius designer is Michael Beirut. And Michael Beirut has a really unique way of making work that you wouldn't necessarily know is for Michael Beirut. It's brilliant. It's genius. You might think, hmm, I wonder if that's Michael Beirut. It's so smart. But you wouldn't necessarily be given visual cues that it was Michael Beirut And maybe the same way that you would if it were Paula Cher or Emily Oberman. You know, there's a certain wit to their work, certain typographic style that Paula has that you're like, hmm, that looks to me like Paula, Emily. But that's, again, very inside baseball. I think those are designers talking and thinking and looking at designers. I don't know that the public at large would be able to identify that. Maybe with Paula, just because she's so famous and has done so much work. That really is reflective of our cultural landscape. In terms of whether or not it's critical or important to have, I think that designers should try to bring an authentic voice to their work. Whether or not that's obvious to the public, I think is not important.
1: One thing that Eli and I have noticed about the digital product design space is that though it is, has this, this sibling relationship to the history of graphic design and print design, in many ways, it's like the, uh, the child that's born as a surprise, that's born later and thinks like, oh, I'm solving problems for the first time that you've never experienced. So oftentimes, digital product designers, they don't look to history. They don't look to adjacent media. They don't look to other disciplines to necessarily help them find solutions to problems. You mentioned Paula Cher, and she's famously lifted from, I think it was a 1920s Alpine Swiss advertising for, I think. For the Swatch. swatch. Yeah. Swatch piece. I think
2: it was more homage than than right. lift, so to speak. Just Correct. Just yes. From my point of view.
1: But that awareness of history, that looking to what has come before and what could I take from this history, how do you think about that with your students Like in terms of like encouraging them to broaden their perspective beyond just, okay, yes, you know the designers of the moment, but who has come before and what other disciplines could we learn from?
2: I think it always helps to have a sense of what came before you. I think that it is something that's beneficial in in every field, to be educated and to be aware of the continuity. That being said, I do think that there are people that come to a discipline later in life, and if they're true geniuses, can create a new language that's not mired in the past, that's far more risky than anyone that's working with a knowledge of the past, might approach the possibilities. So I do think there's room for both. We've seen both in history. But for those of us that aren't geniuses, I do think that having a foundation of understanding about what has led up to this point can only be beneficial and help you create work that is fresher because you do know what has come before you. And you can be connecting things in a way that other people have done before, but connecting them in a new way, that sort of combinatorial creativity.
0: You were talking earlier about this sort of a distinction between art and design and some designers who may be artists, but also reflecting back on the Sagmeister episode, he had a very strong point of view around that. What do you see as the distinction between a designer, designers and artists, and how can each kind of learn from each other's disciplines?
2: Well, I think the biggest distinction is clients, clients and creative briefs. <laughs> because when you're a designer and you're hired for an assignment, you are fulfilling the needs of a client. Now, whether or not you can sneak in some of your own needs, you know, if you can do that, great, wonderful. But an artist is, is essentially their client is the public. Now, I think that when you get to a certain level of fame and fortune, you might run the risk of having to deliver on a certain expectation, but really great artists continue to evolve their whole lives and the more they can stretch and experiment, I think the greater their legacy will be. Somebody like Joni Mitchell that has always been changing and hasn't been pandering to the public. But the artist is creating something that's reflecting their own worldview out, whereas the designer is taking somebody else's worldview, incorporating it through their own discipline, and then sharing it. So I think that there's a very different intention. The intention is different.
1: What are you reading lately, Debbie, that's uh, surprised you or, or helped you see the world in a new way?
2: Mostly I've been reading Work of the guests that I have on Design Matters because my research tends to be very intense. I, I try to really read everything that they've written if possible. So I recently interviewed Eve Ensler, who now goes by the name V. And so I reread In the Body of the World, I read The Apology, and reread The Vagina Monologues. I also just interviewed Fanny Singer. She's going to be an upcoming episode. And she is the daughter of Alice Waters, who created the slow food movement and founded Chez Panisse, the restaurant in California that so influenced First Lady Michelle Obama's efforts in the White House garden that she created. Fanny came out with a memoir recently, and then she also co-wrote a book with her mother, Alice Waters, and also wanted to read some of Alice Waters' work so that I would understand sort of her relationship with her daughter in the same way that I was trying to understand Fanny's relationship with her mom. I spent a lot of time reading what I need to read in an effort to understand my guests better. And on Tuesday, I'm interviewing the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning play, The Strange Loop. And so I saw that play and the Play was written by michael jackson not michael jackson the late great singer but michael jackson the current playwright and so i'm going to reread that over the weekend even though i saw it and i also want to listen to the soundtrack so yeah there's a lot lot to keep up with
0: debbie before we leave off and thank you so much for this wonderful interview is there anything that you want to share any organizations you want to highlight anything that you think would be helpful for our audience?
2: I will just say that everybody should prepare by making sure they're registered to vote and that they vote in the upcoming election.
0: Wonderful. Debbie Millman, thanks so much for being on the Design Better podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.